0: The Old Testament reading for today will be Exodus 24, 1 through 8. That will be the sermon text. The New Testament reading will be Hebrews 9, 11 through 28. Exodus 24 and Hebrews 9. As the children are being situated here, I wanted to remind you of our afternoon worship where I will preach through this catechism question and answer. Um, There are many benefits to that. One of them is that it helps the parents to know how to reinforce these truths with their children in the home uh, during the week. Exodus 24, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Let us go now to Hebrews chapter 9 and consider verses 11 through 28. Hebrews 9, 11. Having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It's now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. I've half jokingly said to some... That the reason I decided to preach through the book of Exodus is so that I might prepare the congregation for a future sermon series through the book of Hebrews. Of course, uh, this is not the full reason. There is tremendous value in studying the book of Exodus on its own, but there is some truth to this. There is a sense in which a good and proper understanding of the book of Exodus and the rest of the Old Testament, for that matter, does help us to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and the New Testament Scriptures which speak of Him. In fact, I think it is safe to say that if we wish to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and the New Testament Scriptures which speak of Him, we must understand the Old Testament Scriptures. For the two testaments are intimately related. Uh, This is very evident in the book of Hebrews from which we have just read. I trust that you were able to see the connection between the old Mosaic covenant and the new covenant ratified in Christ's blood. As I read from Exodus 24 and then from Hebrews chapter 9, uh, you can see that there there is an interconnectedness between these two passages. Clearly, there is an intimate relationship between what God did with Israel through Moses and what God did for all of His elect, Jew and Gentile, through Christ. The two events, the two mediators, and the two covenants, the old and the new, are intimately related to one another. Nevertheless, I trust that you were also able to see, even as I read very quickly, that these two covenants, the old and the new, are substantially different the old anticipated the new, and the new fulfills the old. The old covenant provided for the purification of the flesh, according to the book of Hebrews. Whereas Christ and the new covenant, which He mediates, provides for the purification of the conscience. Do you see the difference? The old covenant provided for the purification of the flesh, whereas the new covenant provides for the purification of the conscience. The Old Covenant was indeed good in that it accomplished God's design, but the New Covenant is far superior in that it actually deals with the problem of sin and makes its partakers right before God in a heavenly, spiritual, and eternal way. If you are at all familiar with the book of Hebrews, you know that this is the point of the book. In the book of Hebrews, the Old Covenant is compared and contrasted with the New Covenant. And the author wishes to convince his audience that though the two covenants are intimately related, the New Covenant, which Christ mediates, is far superior. The New Covenant, which Christ mediates, is far superior to that old covenant which had Moses as its mediator. Please note this, brothers and sisters, the writer to Hebrews does not pit the new covenant against the old, nor does he pit Christ against Moses. Instead, the writer to the Hebrews, along with the rest of the New Testament, Shows that the new is greater and that Christ is superior because the new covenant fulfills the old. In other words, the old and the new covenants and the mediators of those covenants, Moses and Christ, are not enemies, but they are dear friends. If I may speak in this way, the old covenant was happy to give way to the new, for this was its intended purpose. From the beginning, and stated differently, Moses and Elijah were very happy to commune with Christ on the mountain. Do you remember that episode in Matthew chapter 17 where Moses and Elijah appear with Christ before the disciples of Christ? They were friends. Moses and Elijah, who were ministers under the old covenant, were very happy to commune with Jesus the Christ, for they knew that he was the fulfillment of all that they had said. They were dear friends, but they were not equals. Moses and Elijah were servants in God's house, but Christ is the Son. That is what Hebrews chapter 3 says. Moses was a servant in God's house, but Christ is the Son. Now I mention all of this in the introduction to the sermon on Exodus 24, because as we consider this text, which describes to us the confirmation of the Old Mosaic Covenant, it is important for us to keep the New Covenant in mind. We must be mindful of the relationship between these two covenants. We must recognize the similarities, and there are many similarities. I think they will be very apparent to you. There are many similarities between the inauguration of the Old Mosaic Covenant and the inauguration of the New Covenant ratified in Christ's blood but we also must be mindful of the differences. If we hope to properly interpret this portion of Holy Scripture, we must keep the similarities and the differences ever in mind. In other words, we must interpret this Old Testament text in light of Christ and the New Testament Scriptures which speak concerning Him. I have said that Exodus chapter 24 describes the confirmation of of the Old Mosaic Covenant. And by way of introduction, I do also wish to remind you of the covenants that God had made with man before this. There is a vital connection between the Old Mosaic Covenant and the New, which I have already said. But there is also a vital connection between the Old Mosaic Covenant and the covenants previously made, particularly the covenant which God made with Abraham. As you probably know, the Bible teaches that God has always related to man through covenants. You had better know this by now, brothers and sisters. You hear me speak of this often. Through covenants, the terms of the relationship between God and man are established. Through the making of covenants, God declares His sovereign pleasure concerning the benefits that He will bestow on man, the communion they will have with Him, and the way and means by which this will be enjoyed by them. Here I am quoting from Nehemiah Cox. In these biblical covenants, notice, it is God who takes the initiative. It is God who sets the terms of the relationship. All are the outworking of God's kindness in that they offer something to man better than what man previously possessed. I wonder if you remember how God made a covenant with Adam in the garden. God established the terms of the relationship. Adam was called to obey God. The consequence for disobedience would be death. The reward for obedience would be life eternal. Adam broke that covenant of works. But God was gracious and promised to send a Savior. And then God entered into another covenant with Abraham. He called Abraham out from the nations... And promised to make him into a great nation, to give his descendants the land of Canaan, and to bless all the nations of the earth through him. Do not forget the Abrahamic covenant, which was made hundreds of years before this episode that we are considering now in Exodus chapter 24. Do not forget the Abrahamic covenant, for there in that covenant, very important promises were made. Abraham, you're going to have many descendants. They're going to be like the stars of heaven or the sand of the seashore. You're going to become a great nation. I'm going to give your descendants the land of Canaan. I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. All of that was the unconditional promise of God, and you may read about it in Genesis chapter 12. But God did also expand upon this unconditional promise for Abraham's descendants to be blessed in the land that God would give to them. They were to keep the covenant And you may read about this expansion of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 17. In Genesis 12, God made unconditional promises to Abraham concerning offspring, the land of Canaan, and the blessings of the nation through him. Do you know what I mean by unconditional promises? What I mean by that is this. God said to Abraham, this will happen. And there was no if. There was no Then, following an if, it will happen because I have said it will happen. I promise, says the Lord. Right? This is an unconditional promise. A promise that will come to pass no matter what man does. It is not conditioned upon anything. And what were the unconditional promises? Again, Abraham, you will have many descendants. You will become a great nation. You will possess the land of Canaan. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But in Genesis chapter 17 conditions were added in Genesis chapter 15. Before that, the unconditional promises concerning Abraham's offspring were reiterated and clarified. It will not be just through anyone that you have many descendants, but through your own son. But in Genesis chapter 17, conditions are introduced for Abraham's descendants to be blessed in the land of Canaan and to remain there, they would need to keep the covenant. This is immensely important. Do not fall asleep, brothers and sisters. This is immensely important. For you to understand the rest of the Old Testament Scriptures, you must see this. In Genesis 12 and in 15, God is making a covenant with Abraham. Unconditional promises are given to Abraham. But in Genesis 17, Conditions are introduced. This Abrahamic covenant is complex, brothers and sisters. It is not just a covenant of grace. It is also a covenant of works. Conditions are introduced in Genesis chapter 17. And here is what the conditions say. If you wish to be blessed in the land, you must keep the covenant. This is the obligation that is upon you. So then the descendants of Abraham remaining in the land that would surely be theirs. And their being blessed in that land were conditioned upon their keeping of the covenant. So there in Genesis 17 the terms of the Abrahamic covenant were concluded and sealed with the bloody sign of circumcision. Do not forget that word bloody. Bloody. It is there in Genesis chapter 17 that the Abrahamic covenant is brought to its completion, it is formally ratified, and the bloody sign of circumcision is given. Now, the bloody sign of circumcision signifies many things. It marked the Hebrews off as God's chosen people, it called for the circumcision of the heart. But it also reminded the people that should they fail to keep the terms of the covenant, should they fail to obey God's law, they themselves would be cut off. Do you see it? Circumcision signified many things, but this was one of them. It signified that should the descendants of Abraham fail to keep the terms of the covenant that God had made with them, they themselves would be cut off. The sign of circumcision did also point forward to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would be born from Abraham's seed, who would himself be cut off through the shedding of his own blood, not for his own failure to keep God's law, but for the failures of sins, failures and sins of others. So then I ask you, would Abraham certainly have a son, and through that son become a numerous nation, as numerous as the sand of the seashore. Was that a guaranteed thing? Answer, yes, certainly. Why? Because of God's unconditional promise. Would Abraham's descendants take possession of the land of Canaan and have it as their own, a land flowing with milk and honey? Was that a guaranteed thing? Could Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or any of the Hebrews that descended from them mess that up? Answer, certainly they would possess Canaan. Why? Because of God's unconditional promise. Would Abraham's descendants become a great nation with kings to rule over them? Yes, certainly. Why? Because of God's unconditional promise. All of that was stated in Genesis 12 and in 15 it's clarified. All of that would surely come to pass because of God's unconditional promise. And then I ask you, would all the nations of the earth be blessed through Abraham, through the Messiah that would one day come into the world through him? Yes, certainly because of God's unconditional promise made to Abraham in the covenant that God transacted with him. Now I ask you yet another question. Based upon the terms of the Abrahamic covenant, would this nation the nation of Israel, would they be blessed in the land that the Lord would give to them? Would they flourish there? Would they be fruitful and multiply there? Would they remain there? Or was it possible for them to be cut off? Think of exile. According to the terms of the covenant that God made with Abraham, it was possible for them to be cut off individually and also cast out of the land As a nation. Why? Because of the conditional element introduced in Genesis chapter 17. The covenant was to be kept, and the bloody sign of circumcision was a sign of this. So then, you can see, I hope, that this old Mosaic covenant, which is confirmed here in Exodus 24, was organically connected to the covenants which preceded it, the Adamic and the Abrahamic. God entered into this conditional covenant of works with Israel through Moses after He graciously redeemed them from Egyptian bondage. This redemption was in fulfillment of the gracious and unconditional promises made to Father Abraham hundreds of years earlier. This Mosaic covenant was a kind of development of the Abrahamic, in other words. And it was also organically connected to the covenant which was ratified later in Christ's blood, the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace. I'm trying to connect dots for you, uh, brothers and sisters. This old Mosaic covenant did not appear out of nowhere, but it was was in fulfillment to promises previously made. It was a development of the Adamic covenant, a a kind of uh, reinstitution of that in a way, don't get me wrong there, And it was in fulfillment to the promises made to to Abraham many years earlier. It will find its fulfillment in Christ the Lord. So, so far I have attempted to set Exodus 24 in its biblical context. Now let me briefly remind you of the more immediate context. One, the old Mosaic covenant was made with Israel after God redeemed them. Do not forget this. It's very significant. Though it is right for us to call this a conditional covenant of works... It is also right to remember that this was all by the grace of God. Any and all interaction between God and man after the fall of man into sin, other than full and final judgment, must be regarded as gracious. So it is true, this is a covenant of works with conditions for man to keep, but the grace of God is certainly present. Two, we must remember that we have been considering the making of this old Mosaic covenant ever since Exodus 19. In Exodus 19, the covenant was proposed with these words from God to Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... Did you just hear that language right there? (laughs) If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You should remember Genesis 17... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So there, the covenant in Exodus chapter 19 is proposed, and it is clearly a conditional covenant of works. If you will keep my covenant, then this will be the result. You will be my treasured possession among all peoples, you see. And so the Mosaic covenant, uh, like the element of Genesis chapter 17, is... Conditional. And how did Israel respond to this proposal? All the people there in Exodus 19 answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Starting in Exodus 20, the laws and statutes of this covenant were presented to Israel. These these were the words and the rules that Israel was to keep according to the terms of the covenant. First, the Ten Commandments, which contain a summary of God's moral and abiding law, were spoken by God to Israel from Sinai. This is recorded for us in Exodus chapter 20. After that, we find instructions for worship at altars. And finally, the Lord added positive civil laws to the moral and ceremonial. The civil and ceremonial laws were delivered to Israel, not directly, but through Moses, their mediator. So, from Exodus 20 through to the end of Exodus 23, we have the laws of the covenant given to Israel in an introductory way. These were the laws that Israel was obligated to keep. If they were to be blessed in the land that would eventually be theirs, if they were to remain as God's chosen and special people on earth, these were the laws that they were obligated to keep. So finally, we come to Exodus 24, where the covenant is confirmed. All of this can be compared, I think, to the marriage covenant. Getting married is a process, isn't it? It involves a proposal. It involves a betrothal or or engagement period, a ceremony wherein the meaning of marriage is explained. And finally, vows are taken. And in our culture, rings are exchanged, symbolizing the marriage bond. Getting married is is a process, but it all culminates with the 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 stating of vows, and in our culture, the exchange of rings, then the marriage is finalized. Well, in this analogy, Exodus 24 is the marriage ceremony for Yahweh and Israel. Exodus 24 is the marriage ceremony for Yahweh and Israel. And So let us now consider this covenant ratification ceremony. Verse 1 of Exodus 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Three things should be noted about these verses. One Israel, as a nation, was invited to come before the Lord, but they were to worship from afar. Seventy elders were invited to come up on the mountain to, to God as representatives of the people, but even they were to worship from afar. And this theme will remain throughout the Old Covenant. Do not miss it. Worship from afar, the Lord says. Moses alone shall come up, but the rest are to worship from afar. Israel was invited to approach God, Under the terms of the old Mosaic covenant, but the way to God was not opened up for them by the terms of that covenant. That's an important statement. I want you to to ponder this, to see this theme, to understand its significance. Israel was invited to approach God under the terms of the Old Mosaic Covenant, but the way to God was not opened up for them by the terms of that covenant. If you wish to have an illustration of this, think of the veil in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place where the glory of God was manifest. We'll eventually come to consider the construction of the tabernacle and later the temple. But I want you to think of the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. Who was invited to go behind that veil into the presence of the Lord? Who was invited to go behind that veil? Not the people. Not even the priesthood. But only the high priest. Once a year and not without blood. The people were not invited in. But when Christ died, The veil was torn in two from top to bottom. Why? Why did that happen? What was signified by that event? The way to God was opened up so that all who have faith in Christ may come boldly before the throne of grace. Do you see the difference between the Old Covenant and the New in this regard? The people of Israel were invited to come before the Lord and to worship Him, but they were to worship from afar. The terms of the old Mosaic Covenant itself did not bring the worshiper into the presence of God. Christ does that. The New Covenant does that. The New Covenant, ratified in Christ's blood, is the thing that enables us to come boldly before the throne of grace, to cry out to God and to call Him Father. What gives us that right? It is the new covenant ratified in Christ's blood that gives us that right. As I have said, this is the difference between the old covenant and the new and between Moses and Christ. It is through Christ and His covenant and not Moses and His that we gain full access to our Father in Heaven. Indeed, any who draw near, listen to this, any who drew near to God in old covenant times to enjoy sweet communion with Him, with their sins really and truly washed away, as King David did, along with many others. They did so not through Moses, and not according to the terms of the Old Covenant, but through faith in Christ, and by virtue of the terms of the New Covenant. Their sins were washed away, or to use Paul's language, they were justified, not through Moses' mediation, not through the blood of bulls and goats, not by the terms of the old Mosaic covenant. They were justified through faith in the Messiah promised to them. How was Abraham justified, brothers and sisters? Through faith in the promised Messiah. How was Moses justified, brothers and sisters? Through faith in the promised Messiah. Not by virtue of the terms of the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai. Do you understand this? It's so crucial. The Christ had not yet come And the New Covenant had not yet been made or ratified, and yet, to quote chapter 8.6 of our confession, the virtue, efficacy, and benefit of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection were communicated or applied to the elect in all ages, successively from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein He was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world being the same yesterday and today and forever. So so what is the point? My point is that the old Mosaic covenant did many things, but one thing it could not do was to bring the worshiper immediately into the presence of God Almighty with their consciences cleared. Only faith in Christ can do that. And this has always been the case. From the fall of Adam onward, the only way for someone to come into the presence of God Almighty with a clear conscience is through faith in the promised Messiah. Two, under the old covenant order... The people of Israel were invited to approach God from a distance through the priesthood. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu were named by name here. All were priests from the same family. Moses and Aaron were brothers. Nadab and Abihu were Aaron's sons. From them, the priesthood of the Old Covenant would be established. It would descend. They would have the responsibility to represent the people of Israel, to intercede for them through sacrifice and prayer. But we know that they were sinful men too. So when they offered up animal sacrifices according to the command of God, they would have had to do so repeatedly, not for the sins of others only, but also for their own sins. So Israel was invited to approach God, but through the priesthood, through their representation. Three, notice the special role that Moses played. He was a priest before God, but he was also a prophet and the mediator, or we might say middle man, in this covenant which God made with Israel. As great as Moses was, it is important to remember that he was not perfect either. No, he was a sinner who needed cleansing. He was not the Messiah, in other words. He was not the one who would crush the serpent's head or lead God's people into the new heavens and earth. Indeed, soon we will see that he would not even lead Israel into Canaan. Which was a type of the new heavens and earth. As great as Moses was, we must not make him into something he was never intended to be. He was the mediator of the old covenant, not the new. He was a servant in God's house, not the son. Neither Moses nor the covenant he mediated could reconcile anyone to God. For there is one God, and there was one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. That is 1 Timothy 2, 5-6. Look with me now at verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. So he came, comes to the people and he reports to them what God has said. And all the people answered with one voice, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. These words should sound familiar to you because the people said the same thing when the covenant was first proposed in Exodus chapter 19. By this time, the Ten Commandments were spoken. In addition to this, ceremonial and civil laws were revealed to and through Moses. And the people responded in the same way. This is now the second time that they said with one voice, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Given that many of us were raised in dispensational churches, I should probably address the view that says that the people of Israel were foolish to enter into this covenant. Have you ever heard uh, this view? Not all dispensationalists believe this, but many do, and will say that this was a, a foolish thing for Israel to do, to say all that the Lord has spoken we will do. They should have known that they were not able to keep the terms of This covenant. And I must admit, I I feel what I hope is a kind of righteous anger when I think about this view. Are we to think that it would have been right for Israel to reject God's proposal? Would that have been the right way to respond to the God of glory, having been redeemed by Him, led by Him, and fed by Him? And what are we to think of God according to this view? Was God tempting Israel to do something foolish by proposing this covenant to them? Was He leading them astray as He proposed the Old Covenant to them? I think this view is truly preposterous. And only a deeply flawed system, like the dispensational system, could produce a view like this. No, instead, Israel is to be commended for their obedience here. God redeemed them. God initiated this covenantal arrangement. The Old Covenant and the laws which governed it were good, provided that they were correctly interpreted And understood. We must know their purpose and their limitations. The law is good. It is the people who are sinful. But here, Israel was right to respond to the Lord in this way. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Indeed, all who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ should say the same thing. You and I. Should say the same thing in, in response to our redemption in Christ Jesus. Having been set free by Christ, having been redeemed by Him, this should be our attitude. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Having been now saved by the precious blood of Jesus, our heart's yearning should be to live in continual obedience to God's law. We are right to say this, though we know we will fall, fall short. All that the Lord has spoken we will do should be our our heart's cry. It should be our attitude. Will we fail in this? Yes. But why can we say it truly and sincerely? Well, because it is our sincere heart's desire to live in obedience to God's law. And we know that the Lord has provided atonement for our sins. And something similar can be said for Old Covenant Israel. It was right for them to have this desire to live in obedience to the Lord and to commit to that obedience and they also needed to know that the lord would provide for their purification as they failed to keep god's law. We are right to have this as our sincere involve, resolve knowing that the lord has provided atonement for our sins. Verse 4, and Moses wrote down all the words of the lord. I take this to mean that he wrote down the laws that we now have in Exodus chapters 20 through 23. Yes, we know that the Lord Himself would write the Ten Commandments on stone with His own finger, as it were. But here Moses wrote all of these laws down, along with the laws concerning worship and the laws concerning a just society in the book of the covenant, which will be mentioned again shortly. Starting in verse 4b, five things are mentioned that are used in this covenant ratification ceremony. So, so far, the covenant has been proposed, proposed and the people have agreed to it again verbally, Moses has written these laws down in the book of the covenant, but now five things are mentioned that are used in a covenant ratification ceremony. One, there is an altar. Verse four Moses rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. God's people had worshiped at altars from the days of Adam onward, they are prominent in the Genesis story. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, worshipped at altars. Theologically, these altars are to be seen as a testimony to the grace of God. When man fell into sin, God withheld his full and final judgment so that he could provide a Savior, one who would crush the serpent's head, but would be wounded in the process. The heel of the Savior would be struck. Altars were little access points between God and man. They were little Edens in miniature, if you will. And soon we will see that these altars would be expanded to include a tabernacle and later a temple. And this expansion, this expansion of simple altars is quite fitting given the advancements that were made in God's program of redemption under the Old Covenant. That might be something for you to reflect upon later. The altars, the small little simple altars that the patriarchs worshipped at will soon be expanded into a great tabernacle and later a temple. And I am saying that this follows the flow of the progress of the history of redemption as the Lord accomplishes His purposes through the old covenant nation of Israel. Two, we see twelve pillars were erected. Verse 4 at the very end. Again I read, He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. And twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. These pillars were likely pillars of stacked stone. They stood before the altar, and there they represented the whole nation of Israel, which was divided into twelve tribes, as you know. Do you see how this ceremony is taking shape? The covenant has been proposed. It is about to be ratified. Now we have an altar built where God is to be worshipped. We have 12 pillars surrounding that altar, representing the entire nation of Israel. That nation was vast. Not all could approach, but these 12 pillars represented the entire nation. Three, we see that burnt offerings were made. Verse 5, And Moses sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. These burnt offerings were offerings of thanksgiving before the Lord. Some of the meat offered up on the altar would have been consumed by the fire, symbolizing the Lord eating his portion. And as we will see, some of the meat would have been eaten by Israel through the representation of the 70 elders along with Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Picture it now. We have worship taking place. We have 12 pillars representing the entire nation. And... Of the meat that is offered up on this altar, the Lord consumes his portion, but also the people eat. This is a meal that is being enjoyed. Here, communion between God and man is being enjoyed. We do something similar, do we not, brothers and sisters, each Lord's day. For we find mention of the book of the covenant. Verse 7, Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said... This is now the third time. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Again, I say that the book of the covenant contained the laws of the covenant that Israel was obligated to keep. So let me ask you this. What was the blessing that would fall upon Israel if they kept the terms of this covenant? What was the blessing... That would fall upon Israel if they kept the terms of this covenant. What blessing would they earn? What blessing would God bestow upon them? Would they earn for themselves eternal life? Would they earn for themselves the forgiveness of their sins and a right standing before God? Or to use the language of Hebrews 9, would their consciences be cleansed through the keeping of this covenant? The answer is no no such thing was promised to israel under the old covenant and the new testament makes this very clear this covenant that is here being transacted was never intended to provide life eternal or salvation from the eternal wrath of god so then what blessings would come upon israel should they keep the terms of this covenant then answer they would be blessed in the land that the Lord their God was giving to them. This principle was clearly communicated in Genesis 17 when the covenant of circumcision was made with Abraham. And this covenant here, the Mosaic covenant, is an an expansion of that one. Circumcision remains the sign, mind you. This is one of the serious errors made by some dispensationalists. They assume that God transacted this covenant with Israel so that they would be saved really and truly for all eternity through the keeping of this covenant. But no such thing was ever said to them. More than that, the New Testament scriptures are clear that this was not the case. The Old Covenant promised blessings in the land and provided for the purification of the flesh only not the conscience. It had no power to bring the sinner into the presence of God in heaven or to cleanse the conscience from the guilt of sin. Only Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, can do that. The fifth item used in this covenant ratification ceremony was animal blood. Some of the blood from the animals offered up as a peace offering was sprinkled on the altar. Verse 6 tells us about that. And in verse 8 we learn that after the reading of the book of the covenant and after the people said for the third time all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. That should sound very familiar to you, Christian. For Christ said something similar in that upper room when he inaugurated the new covenant in his blood. Now, some have suggested that Moses did not actually throw the blood on the people, but on the pillars of stone, which stood before the altar and represented the people. Whatever the case, the symbolism is very powerful, is it not? What should we say regarding the sprinkling of the blood of these animals upon the altar and upon the people? Three words come to my mind. Purification, consecration, and inauguration. Let me explain. One, the sprinkling of animal blood upon the people and the altar signified purification. The blood was a reminder of the guilt of sin and of the fact that the wages of sin is death. When blood is shed, things die. And these animals served as a substitute for the people. Now it is clear that animals cannot substitute for humans to make them really and truly right before God animal blood cannot wash away human guilt or cleanse the conscience of sinners. But under the old Mosaic covenant, animal blood did purify the flesh as it pertained to the breaking of the terms of the covenant. So if the Israelites as a nation and as individuals broke God's law, they could come before God's law and be represented by the priesthood and have animal blood applied to them, metaphorically speaking, so as to purify them not before God in heaven by that animal blood but on earth and according to the flesh. Those same Israelites if they were to be purified before God in heaven and to have their sins really and truly washed away, what would they need to have done? They would need to have believed upon the Christ promised to them. The Christ who was signified uh, in that animal blood. They would have needed to look forward to Him and to His coming. But this animal blood itself and the terms of the old Mosaic covenant could not purify the flesh only, uh, rather could not purify the conscience only the flesh. The blood of bulls and goats provided a kind of purification for Israel. An earthly, fleshly and temporary purification. These Animals were sacrificed continuously. More than this, the blood of bulls and goats did also point forward to the purification that Christ provides as the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The purification He, Christ, provides is real, spiritual, full, final, and eternal, everlasting. He was offered up once for all. 2. The sprinkling of animal blood signified consecration. Now to consecrate is to set apart as sacred or holy. And when the blood of the bulls was sprinkled on the people of Israel, it signified the fact that they were set apart as holy. A special obligation was set upon them to obey the Lord. And special threats were also set upon them should they fail. So then the symbolism of the blood cut two ways. It signified purification, but also the special obligation that rested on the Hebrews to obey the Lord with the curses of the covenant looming large over them. Circumcision also signified these things. Three, the sprinkling of animal blood signified inauguration, and here I am referring to the inauguration of the old Mosaic covenant. The old Mosaic covenant had been proposed, the laws of it had been explained, but it is here when the blood is sprinkled upon the people that the covenant is put into force. It was with the splattering of the blood that the old Mosaic covenant was put into force. Listen again to verse 8. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The blood of the covenant. What blood was it? It was animal blood. So different than the blood of the new covenant, wouldn't you agree? What blood inaugurated the new covenant except for the blood of Jesus the Christ, the God man? It was with the blood of animals that the old Mosaic covenant was put into force. Brothers and sisters, this whole storyline and these themes should sound very, very familiar to you. mirrors exactly the storyline of the, the, the finished work of Jesus the Christ. An inauguration of a covenant looking forward to the new heavens and new earth. Well, here Israel in Exodus 24 has the covenant that God would made with them inaugurated. And what are they looking forward to except entering into the promised land of Canaan? This storyline and these themes will sound familiar to those who are well acquainted with the new covenant even if they are poorly acquainted with the Old Covenant, because the two covenants are intimately related to one another. There is a deep connection between the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel through Moses and the covenant made with God's elect through Christ. There are many similarities. The question is this, what is the nature of that connection? You can see that they're connected. You could see that the themes are the same. There there is an interconnectedness, no doubt, but what is the nature of the connection between Old Covenant and New? Are the two covenants the same? No, certainly they are not the same. Are they different but relatively equal, each providing a different but valid way for the salvation of sinners? No, that cannot be the case either. The writer of Hebrews is very eager for us to see that the Old Covenant anticipated the new. It prepared the way for the new in many ways and one way that the old covenant prepared for the new was by foreshadowing or prefiguring the new and the work that Christ the mediator would do for the elect. That is the relationship between the two. The one was earthly and typological. It was typical. It symbolized what Christ would do in the fullness of time. Listen again to Hebrews 9. 24 with this we will conclude and then we will go to prayer Hebrews 9:24 as the writer to the Hebrews considers the old covenant and compares and contrasts it with the new he says thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites so there are heavenly realities and what does he call what does he call the things associated with the old mosaic covenant except copies And it was right and necessary for these copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Brothers and sisters, the old Mosaic covenant was an earthly covenant. The purification that was provided there under that covenant through the blood of bulls and goats was fleshly purification, temporary purification, symbolic purification in some ways, pointing forward to the Christ and the new covenant. When Christ shed his blood, when Christ shed his blood, he did so for the forgiveness of sins actually, once for all and for all eternity. Through Christ's shed blood, we have not only our flesh purified, but we have our consciences cleansed before God. For in Him we have true and real and sincere and everlasting salvation. Through Him we have the justification and the adoption as sons. Praise be to God. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Our Father in Heaven, do help us as we study the Old Testament Scriptures, that we would understand them according to their true meaning, as you inspired them, O God. I pray that we would see Christ in the Old Testament, that our love and appreciation for Him would grow and grow. We thank you for what you did under the Old Covenant. We thank you for calling Abraham out from the nations, for making those unconditional promises to him and for keeping those promises. We thank you for what you did in the days of Moses to redeem the Hebrews from Egyptian bondage, to bring them out and even into the promised land. We thank you for your mighty power displayed in those days and for the way in which that nation, despite all of their disobedience, was graciously preserved by you, O God, until the Christ was brought into the world through them. We thank you for your graciousness to us. We thank you for the way that you have worked so powerfully, O God, I pray that our faith in Christ would grow stronger and stronger, that we would see that He is indeed that seed of the woman who has crushed the serpent's head. May we be found in Him, O Lord. May we be found in Him, clinging to Him. May we be found in Him, filled with gratitude and appreciation, knowing that we are indeed rich in Him. In Him we have the real and true and final forgiveness of sins. We have a cleared conscience. We have a wonderful inheritance. The new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. O Lord, strengthen our faith in Christ. May we be eager to proclaim this gospel to others. In His name we pray and all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.